Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we have two very special guests, Sylvie Kaufmann and Timothy Garten-Ash. Sylvie is Editorial Director, Lead Writer and Columnist at Le Monde, for whom she writes a weekly column on global affairs. Previously, she was the first female Editor-in-Chief of Le Monde. And I think even more importantly than these other accomplishments, she is a, a, a long-standing member of ECFR's Board of Trustees. And recently than that, she's written a, a, an important new book, which we're going to be talking about, called Les, Av- Les Aveugles, um, which she translates as, as blindsided, um, which is uh, talking about the, the path to the, the war which we have with, with Russia at the moment and uh, putting it in a bigger historical context. Also uh, joining us on this call is another uh, long-standing member of the of ECFR, Timothy Gartanash. He is a professor emeritus of European studies at the University of Oxford and also a, a regular columnist in, in The Guardian and also the author of a very important book on recent European history called Homelands, which uh, has been recommended to ECFR uh, podcast readers many times um, uh, beforehand. Um, thank you very much to both of you for joining. So, Sylvie, um, why don't we start talking about this this book, which is just appearing uh, in in bookstores uh, in France? You give a, an intimate account of of Western, but specifically French and, and Germany's relations with Russia over the last thirty years. And instead of seeing Putin's Russia for what it was, you claim um, Berlin and France were often hoodwinked by promises of cheap energy, the pipe dream of a common European security architecture with Moscow. And by the time they realized the truth of, of what Russia had become, um, it was it was too late. Um, so it would be very interesting to, to kind of talk a bit about that story, how you came about writing it, um, but also... To, to reflect with both of you about whether the situation that we ended up with with this war in Ukraine was something that was inevitable or whether there could have been different paths taken at different points before that. Um, so do you want to start by, by telling us what motivated you to write the book and, and how you went about doing it? Uh, hello, and thank you very much for, for having me on this uh, podcast. It's great to be with you and with uh, Timothy, <laughs> uh, who actually has some responsibility in this book, uh, not only for the long conversations we had over the years uh, uh, about uh, Central Europe and, and, and Russia, but also because... When I mentioned that I was going to write a book, he asked me, what is it about? And because he said, I'm very good at finding titles. So I summed it up. I summed up the idea in a few sentences and he said, blindsided. And I thought that was uh, absolutely the essence of of what I was finding out in this uh, research. So uh, in fact, what happened is that I was... um, uh, I had the privilege to be invited by the Robert Bosch uh, Foundation to spend some time to take a sabbatical um, uh, time uh, in Berlin uh, to do some research. And I, I worked on how I decided to do this research, to pass, uh, spend this time working on how Berlin, because that was last year and the war in Ukraine had just started, 
how Berlin and Paris, how Germany and France had managed uh, Putin's Russia and how we had got to this, uh, how we somehow had allowed to be um, to open this path to, to war uh, directly or indirectly. And so I was not sure what I was going to, to find when I started, but um, and I, but I, I decided to focus on, on France and Germany because I thought that they were, of course, the main um, decision makers on, on European policy towards Russia uh, after, of course, after uh, the UK had left uh, uh, the EU. Um, but I was, you know, the first thing I, which surprised me is was that I thought this was a Franco-German endeavor. As a good French, I thought we all we do everything as, <laughs> in a Franco-German way. And what I found what, uh, very quickly is that when it comes to Russia, of course it was Franco-German, but it was more German than French, and uh, uh, that Germany was very much in the driving seat uh, on on uh, making the uh, Russian policy. And your narrative begins in 1986, three years before the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. It ends with Putin's invasion of Ukraine in, in, in uh, 2022. Do you, do you want to talk us through some of the, the sort of key moments where um, Europeans or Germany, uh, as, as we like to call it in shorthand, um, uh, acted in particular ways during that period. What do you think the, the sort of key decision points were? Yeah, I started on ni- with 1986 because the, this uh, I was in uh, correspondent in Moscow uh, at that time, and uh, of course Moscow Soviet Union, uh, and I had uh, I was lucky enough to uh, be at the station. I think it was Kazansky station um, in in Moscow when um, Andrei Sakharov was released from Gorky. And that scene, you know, of meeting him at the station, it was December 23rd, 1986. So it was very, very cold, 7 a.m. in the morning. There was not such a big group of reporters waiting for him because there were not so many of us at that time in, in Moscow. And and Sakharov getting off the train that, you know, <laughs> a Soviet train with his uh, fur hat on and looking at us in a kind of bemused way at those Western reporters. I mean, it was obviously full of KGB men. There were probably more KGB than Western reporters. And uh, but he was, you know, his first words were, I'm going to go on fighting for democracy. And that really struck me, the strength of this man who he was, he was um, not even 70, but he looked so frail and, and old because he had been on hunger strike several times. And, and at the same time, the strength he had in himself and the, 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 the strength of his democratic faith, in a way, really struck me. And this is something I also had encountered in Poland with people coming out of prison after um, after martial law. So um, that was three years before the, the Berlin Wall came down and before um, the collapse of communism. But this is something I thought that uh, personified our hope um, for a bright future for those countries which would be liberated from communism. And, and, and then, of course, 
I didn't, in my book, I decided not to cover the 90s because um, first there have been already some excellent good books about the 90s, notably those of uh, Mary Elise Sarotti, uh, but um, um, among others, and I think Timothy also wrote <laughs> some good uh, some good books about this, and but I thought the '90s were a period when we we were not sure. Nobody was sure of what where of the direction this part of the world was going to uh, to go to. While 2000 is is when I really start my research is when Putin is in comes to power, and and then the direction is more clear. And so when it comes to Germany, uh, of course, there's a first period which is really a period where, um, when Germany has huge hopes of cooperation, uh, things that you know, uh, Russia is because is going to be be less chaotic than it was under Yeltsin, uh, that Putin will restore order, and then we can have a good cooperative relationship between the West and 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 Europe. Uh, so there's obviously this. Famous speech of um, of Putin in the Bundestag in on September twenty five of two thousand one, two weeks after after nine eleven, where he decides to speak in German. And that's the first time a Russian leader speaks in 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 German or or in a in a foreign language in a host country, and the Bundestag is just so enthusiastic about him. Is you know. All the, the uh, people I've interviewed in Germany who were there talk so fondly about this speech because uh, it was like finally the world came together uh, and there was really this hope that um, uh, the West and Euro Western, uh, yeah, that Europe and Russia would be able to work together and and cooperate. Um, and then there's a very different speech six, late, six years later in 2007 at the Munich Security Conference, uh, where a very different Vladimir Putin comes, even physically. You can watch those two speeches on YouTube, and it's, it's, it, they are fascinating documents. Um, and the difference in the body language, in the tone, and of course in the content of those two speeches is really extremely striking. Uh, but and yet, in 2007, all these Western leaders and Angela Merkel is on the front row listening to, to Putin in, in that speech in Munich. And everybody's kind of in a state of shock when he leaves the, uh, the scene because this is such an aggressive speech, you know, about uh, American hegemony and uh, um, imperialism and and. But everybody's in a state of shock, and yet, the day after, it's business as it's back to business as usual. Uh, and and a year later, you have uh, the war in Georgia, and then in 2014, you have Crimea. So maybe it'd be great to talk about some of the those events and to take us up to the the, the full scale invasion of Ukraine. But maybe we can dwell a bit on that period between two thousand and two thousand and seven because it, it's very striking. 
um, in Tony Blair's memoirs as well, which is not a, a book which is full of, 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 of introspection and, and regrets. But one of the few moments where um, he, he expresses a regret is, in fact, the, the fact that he wasn't able to craft a different relationship with, with Putin. Um, he was the first leader to meet Putin um, before he even became president, I think, or at least after he became president. And he had kind of high hopes of, 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 um, of building a different sort of relationship with him. Um, Tim, do you, what do you think happened in that period? Do you think that history could have panned out otherwise? Do you think that mistakes were made on the Western side? History can always pan out otherwise. Nothing is inevitable. Listen, let me start by saying it's a fantastic book. I, I've really enjoyed reading it on my travels over the last few weeks. And I very much hope there's going to be a German edition, Sylvie, because I think you're absolutely right. The place where we really need an honest reckoning, if not a historical strike, is Germany, um, because that is that is absolutely fundamental. And the book is full of wonderful vignette of the sort of chaos and of, of, of high politics. I, I mean, I think your description of Sarkozy's uh, diplomacy around Georgia is hilarious. Um, there's also a really chilling moment when you remind us, I'd forgotten this, that on the 4th of April 2022, just after the atrocities in Butcher had been discovered, Zelensky, in one of his video addresses, invites Merkel and Sarkozy to come to Butcher, in effect saying, see what you allowed to happen. Um, I think, you know, if we're starting with 2000 to 2007, there's a question um, which actually Sylvia and I last discussed waiting for a train at Kiev's main railway station in July this year. We had a long wait and a, a great conversation, which is sure we were blindsided, but 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 part of what was behind that was was a kind of blindness or rather being blinkered. That is to say, because things had gone so well for so long post-1989, and we had succeeded in the transitions to democracy and the eastward enlargement of EU and NATO all the way to the Baltic states, I think there was a kind of strong default assumption that um, things were going to go on going that way, and there might be setbacks. And so behind the blindsided was, as it were, the blinded or the self-blinded, and, you know, of course, one has to remember that Putin at least pretended to be quite cooperative with the West in those early years on the war on terror with the US. And one of the things I found working on my book, Homelands, is he didn't object strongly to the eastward enlargement of NATO. George Robinson, who was then Secretary General of NATO, told me he'd had nine meetings with Putin, and Putin hadn't objected in any of them. Condi Rice said the same until 2007. So I think, for me, the big mistakes are not actually marked, your question, in that period. I think the big mistakes start in 2007, when Putin basically at the Munich Security Conference declares war on the, on the West, as Sylvie was saying, and then above all, 2008 and then 2014. But, um, you know, there are uh, some events that happen between 
the the sort of honeymoon which you describe at the beginning when he's at the Bundestag and then after 9-11 he he really does open up and tries to be very helpful to the US on the war on terror and then obviously the Iraq war is is a is a is a kind of important turning point um what do you think you know because something obviously happens to Putin in terms of his ambitions as uh, as far as the West is concerned between those different dates yeah what what um you remember you may remember uh putin was the first foreign head of state or government to call bush on september 11 uh condi rice uh, recalls this and says because she was in fact she was the one uh she she wanted to talk to moscow to say to tell to inform the russia the russians that the american troops had been on uh, american forces had been put on high alert and she you know that standard procedure uh, to uh, inform your your partners, and so she called Moscow, and more or less Putin uh, picked up the phone because he was going, he was looking for George W. Bush to 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 call him, and he said, "What can we do for you?" So that's uh, you know that was uh, the spirit in two thousand one, and he definitely. Uh, uh, offered to help uh, in the war against terrorism, and he did help, you know, with different uh, um, allowing planes to to fly over Russia and so on. Um, But then there was the war in Iraq, as you said, and then things turned very differently because then Putin, uh, France, Russia, and Germany uh, took another turn, and and, uh, then the relationship with the U.S. really went... uh, Sour. And then in 2004, something else happened, which I, I think was very important. It was the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. And, and after the, um, um, yeah, that was the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. And after the Rose Revolution, the Rose Revolution in Georgia first, wasn't there? And then it was the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. Exactly. Absolutely. And that's when Putin started to suspect the West of interfering. I think when he started to become paranoid with the West uh, and uh, and his behavior uh, became very much more clearer. Can, can I just jump in there? Because I, I mean, I think it's important to say that the basic instinct to try and get something of the Russian empire back and Russian greatness back was there from very early on uh, in Putin. I mean, I tell the story of meeting him when he was still deputy mayor of St. Petersburg in 1994, and he was already talking about the territories that were, quote-unquote, historically always Russia, and specifically mentioned Crimea, so that I think, you know, we shouldn't kid ourselves. There was a kind of basic impulse to try and win back as much as possible of the Russian sphere of influence. And then I think Sylvie has said, made the crucial point, it wasn't NATO enlargement so much as democracy enlargement that really frightened Putin. And um, um, I actually at an ECFR event in Vienna, Mark, if you remember um, a Russian journalist saying the most important event in Russian politics in the last 20 years didn't happen in Russia. It was the orange revolution in Ukraine. We basically have this um, uh, deterioration of, of relationships the Iraq War, the Coloured Revolutions, and then um, the Munich speech in 2007. Um, and then 
the whole idea of the of being blindsided are kind of mistakes which get make which get made after that when Europeans, as you say, willfully kind of fail to to spot the signals about where where Russia's uh, going. What do you think the sort of critical uh, decision points are between the Munich speech and the war in twenty twenty two? I think first there's the NATO summit in Bucharest in two thousand eight where France and Germany, I mean, again, Germany was in the driving seat there, Angela Merkel and Steinmeier and Frank-Walter Steinmeier, who was then foreign minister, um, uh, but very much supported by France and, and Sarkozy, um, decide to block Bush's uh, attempt to uh, open the way to um, uh, NATO, open the door to NATO, to Ukraine and Georgia. Uh, and that's a very significant decision. Um, Bush has to give in. And so there's no, uh, the door, uh, as <laughs> there's this very ambiguous compromise, which is decided, uh, which I think Ukraine is still paying for now, um, that the door is open, but as, as, you, as the Ukrainians put it, uh, the door was open, but we were not invited. Yeah. So, uh, so they didn't join and uh, and i think that was also a signal that putin understood very well uh then there's the georgia war where uh, that's where sarkozy this time france is in the driving seat sarkozy because france uh, chaired the european union sarkozy decided to negotiate a ceasefire uh which he does uh with the moscow and tbilisi but of course the ceasefire is on russian terms um, and so that's another signal and nobody else moves. Um, and then there's uh, Ukraine. But what, what happens also during this time is that uh, Nord Stream uh, uh, pipeline, uh, Nord Stream 1 and then Nord Stream 2 after Crimea, Nord Stream 2 was final, the deal was finalized in 2015. So one year after Crimea was annexed. So these this gas, uh, Russian gas relationship with Germany gets stronger and tighter. And, and we have this dependent gas dependency, which grows. And uh, under Merkel's uh, leadership, it started under Schroeder leadership, but then uh, Merkel very strangely, I mean, not strangely, but this is really one enigma that I would one day like to finally uh, understand about Merkel is how she not only endorsed this policy of making uh, Germany more and more dependent on Russian gas, but, you know, but uh, uh, made it even stronger. So, and she, contrary to Schröder, Schröder fell into the trap that Putin had set up for him. And Putin, as a good KGB officer, had totally, had perfectly identified Schröder's personality and his weak points and, and, and seduced him. Uh, Merkel was a very different uh, uh, type. You know, she couldn't be seduced because she, know the, she knew the system from within, having lived in a communist uh, uh, East Germany until the, year, uh, the age of 35. So she couldn't be duped, but and she didn't like Putin at all because he behaved terribly with her right from the beginning. And yet, she allowed this policy of, you know, uh, being more and more dependent on Russia to 
to go ahead. And this is something of a mystery to me. Tim, you followed German politics as closely as anyone and have been back and forth and also been speaking to a lot of the people around at the time, including then Foreign Minister Frank-Walter Steinmeier, as well as people around Merkel's entourage. What's your explanation for what happened? So, I mean, first of all, I agree very much with Sylvie about the successive turning points. And Sylvie has a fantastic blow-by-blow account of the Bucharest summit, uh, including the four different pantsuit jackets that Angela Merkel wore for different purses. (laughs) I thought that was a very (laughs) fine observation. Um, And also Lech Kaczynski, the then Polish president, ripping off Merkel about leaving Ukraine in the lurch. That's very interesting. I mean, my own view is that essentially the big turning point of which the West failed to turn was 2014. We should have been much more alert in 2008, but it was a kind of much more complicated, slightly less clear, but there was no ambiguity at all about what happened in 2014. Russia simply seized by force a chunk of Ukraine's sovereign territory. And so that that's the moment at which you know, that the, the big question goes to, to Germany. And you know what? I, I It comes back to what I was saying earlier. Merkel was a leader of, of the status quo, of managing what is. And Germany was a status quo power, which was tremendously comfortable with everything that was. And so Germany wanted the world to go on being as it seemed to be at that time, because that was a perfect world for Germany. So I think they were very reluctant to see the change, in addition to which it's important to say she was always a cautious politician in the coalition. And of course, Nord Stream 2, to be fair, was a social democrat project. And her fault was not to stand up against it. So that most of her sins, if you like, are sins of omission. I mean, the same about economic dependency on China, about Hungary, about the Eurozone, about, you know, the panicky departure from nuclear powers. So it will be very interesting to read, I hope, Sylvie's book appearing in German, side by side with Angela Merkel's memoirs, for which the rather nice title has been suggested, My Excuses. Is this is this your title, Tim? Yeah. Uh, it was a joke I read in Der Spiegel. Um, but can I just say one other thing? Because this is really a question to, to Sylvie, because uh, I think it's kind of important, I think, for, as we're coming towards the, cl- the end of the conversation. Uh, Sylvie, you say twice in the book that with hindsight, the post-89 period looks like only a parenthesis in history. That as where we, you say, use that formulation twice. I just wonder if that's quite right, because actually, you know, we achieved a hell of a lot in the first half of what I call the post-war period. I mean, if you think of the extent of NATO and EU enlargement all the way to the Baltic states up to 2007, um, you know, countries that didn't even exist on the map of Europe in 1989. Um, and actually, one of your great themes is Kaya Kalas. The Estonian prime minister um, giving Angela Merkel, of all people, a roasting at a European Council summit, and I think summer summer 2021 when Merkel June yeah June 2021 last uh, last European summit of Merkel when Merkel Mer- Merkel wanted to go off and have another summit with Putin. So so I just wonder if if the image of the parenthesis is 
is quite right, actually, because, you know, there was a lot that was achieved in the first half of the post-war period, and it's in the second half of that period, it feels to me, that 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 we things went wrong and we that that's when we were really blindsided yes i think i was uh, that, that you know i wrote this book mostly under the uh, um influence of this war in ukraine and this is where i had the feeling that we had failed um i mean the war is going on uh, we don't see the end of it honestly um and uh, we have Uh, 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 some hope now, which just, you know, some very positive development, which just happened with the Polish election, of course. But it is true that over the past few years, uh, you know, illiberal democracies had been uh, uh, very much um, uh, strengthening. Uh, and so this is where I saw the, you know, And 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 let's face it, democracies are are declining in uh, around the world. There are fewer and fewer democratic regimes. So this this is probably what led me to to uh, think that it was a parenthesis. But if you think the parenthesis is not closed, well, this is excellent news. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the question is also, have we learned from our mistakes, isn't it? But well, that's what I was going to sort of end with, because in a way, you, you tell this extraordinary story about the French tendency to think too strategically with Sarkozy and Macron trying to woo Russia bilaterally and the German tendency not to think strategically enough with Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2 and all the attempts to, to pretend that this was an economic relationship rather than a, a strategic one. Um, a lot's happened since 2022. Um, where do you think we are now? Do you think that the parenthesis Um, is really about the, these sort of Russian mistakes. Uh, well, mistake, the blindness is now kind of over and, and we're going to be in a different place. Or how do you see things moving forward? Uh, it's very hard to tell at the moment because we're in such a mess with all these wars going on. And, uh, you know, I was very struck uh, last this week, last week with um, while Biden was trying to do something in Tel Aviv. And at the same time, you had Xi Jinping and Putin and Viktor Orban joining them uh, in Beijing and, you know, trying to show that they are setting up an alternative world order. So, you know, I don't know where this will take us, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I hope we, we draw the right lessons. I hope we draw the right lessons with China, particularly. Uh, but I think this is still an open question. I'm not sure we have totally understood or or, or, or that we want to understand. Um, and this is really, you know, I, I cannot answer your question precisely because I think we are right in the middle of it. Yeah. What do you think, Tim? You're very good at writing the history of the present rather than... Uh... Um, escaping so, the... so, so you see, the reason I'm I'm sort of slightly thinking about the notion of the parenthesis is I think it was just a historical period in which some things changed so that our starting point now is a different one from where we were before. And I think that period ended on the 24th of February 2022. I think we're genuinely at the beginning of a new period of European history. And... Um, You know, it's up to us and it's up to our leaders to do better this time. Uh, honestly, 
you know, no one's going to get back into bed with Vladimir Putin. I mean, that's for sure. So, and Russia is self-excluding itself from the European concert for the foreseeable future. But I think where Sylvie is absolutely right is, are we learning the deeper lessons of this story in relations with, for example, China? Uh, and also a kind of structural lesson, which is constantly to interrogate your underlying assumptions, right? Because that's in a way what was the problem here, but there was much too much of a kind of bien pensant, um, broadly speaking, liberal consensus about relations with Russia. So more work for the ECFR to do. And obviously one of the lessons that we uh, realized too, too late was that we didn't listen to the voices we, you know, which were not uh, coming our way. Uh, I mean, Poland, the Baltic leaders. I mean, they really warned us again and again. But, you know, they are very clear, all the, all the ones I've interviewed for this book, we are very clear. We told them they were psychopaths and tra traumatized by history, and we definitely didn't want to listen to them. So that's another lesson, I think. Well, I think that's a great place to, to end the, the podcast. We normally end with our bookshelf segment, but I think here we have two uh, books for everyone to buy. Uh, Les Aveuglés, Comment Berlin et Paris ont laissé la voie libre à la Russie, the, the blindsided how Berlin and Paris cleared the way for Russia, available from all good bookshops in France. And also, um, as I said at the beginning, Homelands, A Personal History of Europe by Timothy Gartnash, available from all good bookshops um, all over the world, I'm sure. been wonderful talking to the two of you. I think the themes which we discussed are, are ones which are, are leading to uh, not just uh, historical reflections, but I think are forming the foundation for a remaking of Europe, which is happening now um, in this new era, which we ended about up talking about. And we'll have many more podcasts probably with the two of you in the months and years ahead to talk about those things. But um, for now, I just want to, to say uh, uh, a big thank you to the two of you for joining. Um, if people have enjoyed listening to us, um, please do head to whatever platform you use to download this episode from and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it'd be great if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating, as I'm told that helps to bring other people towards the podcast. But for now, from Sylvie Kaufman, Timothy Gartnash, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The research in this podcast is Anand Sunder, and our producer is Mireya Farrow-Saratz. Mm -hmm.